This program has been brought to you by Cider Week New York City, happening November 6th through 15th, 2015. For more information, check out ciderweeknyc.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode number 105, and it is election day, and it's not a major election. There's no presidential nominations to be made. There's no president, him or herself, to be elected, and so it's a day that most people let fly under the radar. And a friend of mine and I were the other day playing a game what if you were suddenly famous and you needed to have a cause? Like, what's your cause? And I was like, well, I, <clears throat> I got my dog from a shelter. I like shelter animals and I like sustainable seafood. And she was like, yeah, but you know what? You nailed me last year for not voting. And I was like, oh, that's right. I did because she and I were talking and she said that she hadn't gone to vote and it turns out that convincing people to go vote in every election is going to be one of my causes. And here's why. It's very simple. When you go to vote, and in my case, in our very small town, we're voting for the town council. And it would actually, like, I would see a difference every day whether or not there's a Republican town council or a Democratic town council in place. But more importantly, regardless of where your politics lie, when you go and cast your vote, you're saying to the federal or state or county government... This is a worthwhile use of your money. Facilitating this, the cost of the booths, the cost of the technology, the cost of the counting, and all of the stuff that goes into making elections is like millions of dollars. And if people stop voting because you're busy, you don't care, you don't know who's running, it doesn't matter, you're not going to be in town that day and you forgot to file an absentee ballot, you are effectively saying it's not worth it to me that we get to do this. And I know it sounds really like conspiracy theory, but I think it's true that over the course of time, the government might say, hey, look, we are running out of money here and we need to make some very hard choices. You guys don't even use this privilege that you have. Why are we funding it? And if we're all standing there with our hands in our pockets, like, well, I don't, I didn't think it was that important. I never want that day to come. Like, I really believe in the power of your own voice and your own choice. And I know in the presidential election, it's really easy to feel like your vote really doesn't matter, especially if you're not in a swing state. Like, yeah, what difference does it make? It makes such a difference in that you're saying this process matters to me. And when I listen to the news from around the world and you hear the stories of what people go through in order to get this privilege or to keep this privilege or when this privilege gets taken away, I don't want to decide that literally 15 minutes, maybe less out of my day is worth that kind of sacrifice. So if you're listening to this in real time and you haven't voted yet, go down your polling place. They're set up so that they're within walking distance of your house I think they, they're close by. It's usually like your kid's school. That's where mine is. 
there are volunteers sitting there who will be cheerful and happy to see somebody come through the door and just go and vote your party line go and vote who you think or you know you have the power of google in your phone stand outside in the parking lot read the people's names see their first sentence and vote for the person that you feel compelled by not necessarily because you want that person to be in office but because you want to send the message to the people funding elections that you think it's a worthwhile thing to do Okay, that's my that's my mission statement for the day. But I was thinking about that a lot in terms of like agency and giving away our sort of sense of power. And about two years ago, almost to the day, it was on October 29th, two years ago, um, I wrote a story for a publication and I worked with an editor for a long time. And ultimately, it was decided that they didn't want to run the story. Uh, The reason for that was um, the publisher didn't think that it had enough character growth. I didn't have a big enough aha moment, and I didn't want to force it into a, you know, I didn't want to take the story and force it into a place that it wasn't authentic. You know, like, I, I take being transparent very, very seriously, and so... We sort of parted ways, and they were like, hey, best of luck, publish it someplace else. And so I pitched it to a number of other publications, and I have gotten crickets. And now it's been two years. And I bring this up because I spend a lot of time with my students, some of which are approaching graduation. And I have been published, I am privileged and lucky to have been published in a lot of different cool places. And I think that there's a misunderstanding that I certainly had it. Like, if you just get published. For me, it was a cookbook. If I just get a cookbook deal, then the world is going to open up in front of me all of everything I want, all of the speaking engagements, all of the signed headshots, all of the, you know, events at Williams-Sonoma, all of that's going to become available to me. And in my fantasy, that was like riches. Um, I, I got asked once by my mother how I was going to know I was successful. And at the time, I was much younger, and I said, I think when I'm able to hire a stylist, when I'm able to hire a stylist who will just like drop garment bags off at my house, make me look beautiful, and I don't have to do anything, that's how I'll know. Now, 10 years later from when I thought that, I just, I want to be able to sign up for auto pay. I really just want to know that every month, all of my bills can be paid for in the month that they are due. And... I don't know if that comes as a surprise to people. I, and I want to make sure that there's no, no misunderstanding that I'm leading some life of luxury because I get a radio platform and I have done cool, fun stuff. The most of it, it has been for free. And so when I talk to my students about, you know, how do you get to do what you do? It comes with a little bit of a bitter pill because I did a lot of stuff for free, which published writers will tell you, don't write for free. I don't know if um, you saw the oatmeal cartoon. I posted it on my Facebook wall. If you go to Facebook and look at my wall, you'll see uh, a cartoon that he published after Will Wheaton wrote a blog post about how the Huffington Post wanted to republish a blog of his for free about the seven steps that he took to change his life. And if you read the seven steps article, it's really, really good. But Will Wheaton took to his blog to write about how the Huffington Post asked if they could repost it, and he, like, blasted them. And I will say, full disclosure, I have written for the Huffington Post for free. Um, 
But his argument is this is not a not-for-profit. This is not an educational institution. This is not a group of you know do-gooders who want a free thing to put in their calendar as a giveaway. This is a multi-million-dollar uh, corporation that's asking to publish some of his. And he's like, "Look, I'm Will Wheaton," which, if you don't know, was famous for his work on oh. Oh, God. I'm pretty sure it's Star Trek. Um, <laughs> Chef Emily at sharpenhot.com, if I'm wrong. Uh, he's like, I'm lucky enough to be already famous. I don't need the boost of the Huffington Post and this like um, bad word in the world of being a creative person, exposure. He doesn't have to do it for the exposure because he's already Will Wheaton. For me, when I was trying to start out making a name for myself, that that was so intoxicating. Like, yeah, well, they're not going to pay me. And they'll, there's going to be, and for the record, this is still true, there's still there's going to be 10 people, maybe 100 people behind me who are willing to do this work for free because of the exposure. Now, each individual thing, I can't pinpoint and say this exposure was worth X number of views on my Facebook page or my, you know, new likes or Twitter followers or whatever. But taken as a whole, I have built a career, sort of. I can't sign up for autopay, but I'm getting closer. But this story that I'm going to read to you has been this kind of like holdout for me because I really love it. And I and maybe that's part of the problem is that I love this story too much, but I really wanted to get paid for it. And it never happened. And so once I give it life on the radio, that it can't go anywhere else. It can't be published in any other place. And so it's been this like push and pull. And I will tell you that articles that I have written for pay, the, the most money I've made, the most money is $150. So we're not talking about a lucrative career where you know people are like, how do you get to do what you do? I'm like, well, I haven't taken a vacation that didn't involve a tent in four years. And some people look at me and they're like, did you say a tent? Like, yeah, a tent, like camping. Like I drive to a campsite with my family and we camp because we're making the best of what we have. But this idea that like, if I just get published, everything's going to be okay, totally wrong. It's wrong. And I hear good friends, close people to me say, you know, oh, if, I could just, if I could just do this, if I could just do that. So in the spirit of election day... And making my own choices and deciding what's important and what my causes are, I'm going to read you this story that's been sitting in Google Docs. It's been through numerous editors, uh, and I'm going to give it life here because I love it. And I want mostly my dad and my uncle Jimbo to hear it because they are the inspiration behind it. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Jack a beat of silence in case you want to pull it out. A little behind the uh, wall on the radio curtain in case you want to cut it and put it up on its, its own freestanding story. Because then it'll be its own freestanding story someday. That's true. I also have something to add about this when you're done in terms of DJing. You want... Yeah, you go now. I'm going to do it real quickly. Yeah, yeah, go. It's funny because, you know, the the exposure thing for writers, for DJs, it's drink tickets. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked to do a gig and, like, the cover charge might be, like, 15, 20 bucks. I'm like, what's the pay for the DJ? And they're like, well, you know, free drinks all night, and it's going to be totally fun. Yeah. I'm like, I can't pay my rent with fun, you I'm jerk. Like, i got a big bar at home. i got a lot of <laughs> bottles of whiskey. I can go home and drink gladly, you know? Right, um, and not be working. And there's this one story I have to share really, really quickly. Yeah, so yeah. It was a situation like that. 
And I took a cab. I brought all my stuff. This was a friend of a friend. They were throwing an event. Um, it was actually a Halloween event a little while ago. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But anyway, I show up. I take a cab. I bring my own equipment, mind you. So my turntables and everything. And I set up. And they're like, I'm so sorry. There's no budget. We're just really tight. You know, we'll give you drinks all night. Whatever. I do it. Months later, I hear the person who threw the event say, oh, that party was so great. And you know what? It paid for a whole month of my rent. Oh, I'm just like. Did they really? know you? Did they know you were within? Yeah, they were telling me this. That it's all right. Yeah, we, we just, just had to share that. That's all. I just want to put it out there to the people who are making these decisions. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't know you can't pay your rent with drink, t- drink tickets. You can't. No, you cannot. In fact, it probably has the reverse effect. Right. On paying your I rent. was going to say. And as a DJ, are you able? I don't. I've never. De- I mean, I. I have pushed play on two records, record players next to each other. But like, can you drink through that? Like, well, I don't want to advocate anything. <laughs> for me personally, I do just fine uh, with with what I call some fuel. Um, yeah, I mean, and like when I'm cooking, like last night I was cooking at an event, and somebody gave me a cocktail that I nursed through basically the entire. Event. It's not that I can't have fun and work, but it's your it's your job. You're working. Yeah, everybody else is at the party, and I think you know there's an envy maybe that people look at creative types and are like. You you have so much fun at what you, you rock do. Rock star, yeah. Yeah, that must that lifestyle must be so great. And it's like, yeah, I still have the same health insurance bills that you do. Like, and when I was single, people would say you must get so many like dates and girls. <laughs> I'm like, do you do you know who stays around until four thirty five a.m. when I've got my equipment and I'm calling a cab? Nobody. Right, and they're gonna yeah. what? They're gonna watch you coil up wires. Yeah, <laughs> just hold on one second. I'm just gonna pack this stuff up. Oh man! Anyway, so this sorry. is a, no, this is great because this is a call to action to people who are looking for donations. Before you ask for something for free, ask yourself: Should it really be free? And if not, what can you pony up? And maybe it's not a lot, but it should be cash because that's what we need. Um, okay, so I'm going to read you the story, and then we're going to take a break. And then I'm going to come back, and Jack's got some cooking questions to ask me, which is good because we're starting on the Thanksgiving work. But what's in it? I ask my father. I'm sitting at the kitchen table as a little kid, legs still short enough to swing barefoot from an antique chair as I shovel another forkful into my mouth. The kitchen is sunny, the table is heavy and round, a leaf added to accommodate occasional guests is then left in for weeks or until the next holiday or gathering. It collects piles of mail, magazines, the new phone book, all teetering in poorly engineered piles. I ask every time hunting season rolls around, and this foreign, polarizing delicacy emerges from an igloo cooler on the floor. I ask like an annual religious incantation, summoning forth this family ritual. I can't believe you're eating that, says my mother, the corners of her mouth drawn down nearly to jawline. The balance of her frame shifted onto one hip in an effort to support the weight of disgust, the weight of who is this child that gobbles up that. My father's face lights up, Here comes his punchline. Every time I ask the same question, our familiar dialogue, his eyes sparkling, he stands proudly upright and drops another white butcher butcher paper wrapped block onto the counter. Everything but the oink. He says it with a practiced audible wink, eyes twinkling as my mother, a gastronome in her own right, but having a longer list of won't eats than wills, drops her coffee mug into the sink with an exasperated sigh as once again, I've preferred my father's tastes over hers. 
Say I love Scrapple in polite company and be prepared to be looked at as though you've just declared an affinity for crystal meth. Those skeptics without fathers returning home from hunting in Pennsylvania's Dutch country with solid blocks of pork puree to slice, fry crisp, and bathe in maple syrup, how could they understand the love of liver mush you hold so dear? As an adult, as a trained chef, I'm genuinely curious, what is Scrapple? The question is a lightning rod lightning rod of curled lips and suppressed gag reflexes or a raised eyebrow a conspiratorial secret password a knowing smirk the slight indication that you love scrapple too i set out to investigate scrapple recipes in pennsylvania's dutch company visit a few butchers poke around would they tell me what was in their scrapples the answer is easily found on the internet Pork stock, cornmeal, spices, a vague reference here or there to organs for which few are taking full responsibility. Celebrity chefs with road food-themed television shows opt for, quote, meaty ribs and hocks, or authentic-sounding pounds of pork liver, or G-rated recipes for the home cook on a colorful recipe aggregator. Main ingredient, good, clean sausage. Would actual makers of the stuff tell me what was in their ground meat puddings? It's more than a little intimidating to waltz into a rural butcher and say, So, tell me, what's in it? As any restaurant cook presented with a list of patrons' allergies can attest to, this question only sounds like an assault, no matter how well-intentioned. But with the renaissance of all things heirloom and home canning making the covers of urban style sections, maybe Scrapple just needs some good PR. Andrea Beth, my cousin by father's friendship, warns me that the Pennsylvania Dutch... Traditional scrapple makers are rather insular. My friend says they're very unfriendly. Her father is my uncle Jimbo. Though of no blood relation, Jimbo and my father grew up riding bikes around their Long Island neighborhood and when old enough got shotguns and hunting and fishing licenses. Eventually, Jimbo took off for Pennsylvania countryside while my father stayed put on the tidal salt marsh, thus providing mutually satisfying vacation destinations. It was Uncle Jimbo who had a big hand in getting Kidney intoxicated with the pleasures of food and hospitality. Round, jolly, and warm like real-life Santa Claus, he wouldn't arrive until well after a child's bedtime. But that just meant the andouille jambalaya he whipped up from memory would taste that much sweeter as a midnight snack. The smell of wild turkey bourbon sweeter still as the grown-ups imbibed above me, not noticing or caring that it was a school night. Ready for my Scrapple investigation to begin, I called Uncle Jimbo and asked him to recommend a few places I could go. He began a roll call of places that were good or really great, and the best, what my buddy calls gourmet Scrapple. As we got off the phone, Jimbo said in his th theatrical hyperbole, Oh, NM, if you're interested in investing, I happen to know that www.scrapple.com is available. I'm thinking of starting a business with the tagline, it's not just a food, it's a lifestyle. We got off the phone and I plotted points on the map. Anxiety and anticipation firmly in place as I prepared to ask, what's in it, of insular butchers? My first stop off the highway was in the Leonardsville, PA post office. A few hours on Route 78 and I was lost and in desperate need of a ladies' room. I expected the federal employee wearing latex gloves sorting L.L. Bean catalogs to direct me to the nearest fast food establishment. Instead, she swung the door open wide and said, Head on back, first door on the left. I hadn't been behind the post office counter since my field trip in kindergarten, before I or the country knew what anthrax meant. 
But there I was, passing cheese-smiling family portraits and inspirational wall hangings above employees' desks. Pita Brothers? Yeah, you're almost there. Few more, do- few more doors down on the right. The red building. This is a detail a mail carrier can provide that a GPS unit cannot. I thanked her for putting me back on track, turned off my garment, and pulled into the clearly labeled Peter Brothers driveway as she had instructed. In an empty town, with dusty for rent signs and neglected will-return-at plastic clocks hanging in nearly every Main Street window, the parking lot at the butcher was full. A steady steady stream of people were coming empty-handed and leaving laden with large brown paper bags. Inside, the heady smell of blood, bacon, and freon. At the counter, I asked for a brief education in scrapple-making. The lady helping the customers looked at me skeptically. Was I a health inspector? A member of PETA? No, I was just a cook looking to satisfy a childhood curiosity. She kept one eye on me and walked along the counter, past her regulars, to a small choir of butchers in long white coats with blood-soaked aprons working on a carcass on a large table. She said something... And as one, they stopped working and all turned to look at me through the glass partition, with knives dangling at their sides. It was unnerving. One man broke away, walked past her, over to me, and said with zero interest in talking, Well, you slice it about yay thick, holding his meaty thumb and forefinger about an inch, and a par- an inch apart. She knows how to cook it. She wants to know how to make it, the lady barked at him. Where before he'd been merely annoyed at being distracted from his day's wage, now he eyed me suspiciously, along with the silenced posse over his shoulder. Earlier, in my fear, I outlined this as my worst-case scenario. Well, you start with your pork bones and beef bones, boil that in water a while, then you add your spices, salt, pepper, coriander. He stopped to gauge my satisfaction. Do you put any organ meat in? I pressed. We used to, but now we ain't got them around anymore because we don't do our slaughtering no more. We just get the stuff that people want to eat. I could hear sad nostalgia creeping around the edges of his story. In the four places I visited, no one said City Slicker out loud, but I could hear it each time I pressed beyond the first answer to my question, looking for the catalyst, the ingredient that shortens gag reflexes in urban throats. A few miles further into my drive, Dietrich's Meats sits just off the highway behind an enormous Bucks County-bound tourist-attracting billboard advertising Pennsylvania Dutch specialties like quilts and honey and a parking lot of what my mother would call Elmer Fudd types, flannel plaid, non-ironic trucker hats. They were similar. They were similarly skeptical of my interest, childhood curiosity story notwithstanding. The lady behind the counter at Dietrich's had hair, skin, and glasses perplexingly all the same shade of elderly translucent. She gestured to another woman, one behind the other branch of the L-shaped counter, a somewhere in middle-aged woman who with her heft nearly filled the space between two very tall shelves displaying jars of jams and jellies of every imaginable preservation nearly to the ceiling. From her window, she said, well, you start with your pork bones and beef bones left over from the week of butchering and boil that in water with your spices, salt, pepper, coriander. She tucked her chin into her neck, furrowing her eyebrows behind thick glasses and shook her head in a gesture that I recognized as disgust. We had the head and the liver and kidneys, but none of that weird stuff. But then she continued, now we keep all that? We keep that for pickling. And she gestured to the shelf on her right. What, without further inspection, I had assumed was a continuation of the displays of apple butter and wild blueberry preserves and apricot jam 
was in fact the same white screw top jars of various sizes filled instead with pickled duck gizzards, lamb's tongues, and pig snouts pressed up against the glass like faded specimens in a biology classroom. How did people eat these? I asked. Just like that, she said. Like, duh. I tried to imagine what a room temperature pickled pig snout might feel like between my molars. No bread or mustard? Nope, just like that. Out of the jar. I bought a jar of pig snouts. City slicker indeed. At Highway Meats in Wommelsdorf, I got a different answer from the two men working the counter. We just use the meat because if people can taste the liver, they tell us they don't like it. So ours is just the meat from the butchered bones. And we got lots of bones, too, because now people want everything boneless except T-bones and pork chops. Again, disappointed nostalgia with the way of the American palate. I asked why they thought Scrapple had such a bad reputation. Back when people were doing barn butchery, no, re no refrigeration, they just threw everything in, ground it up, and called it what it was. All the scraps. So I guess now it's got a hard time shedding that. I pointed to the case of beautifully displayed, subtly irregular handmade hot dogs. Why don't people have the same reaction to hot dogs, I asked. They laughed out loud, exchanged insider glances, and one said, with his mocking palatable, palpable, now a hot dog is a whole different animal. In that, you can have up to 30% fat and still call it a hot dog, and people will love it. I thought of my mother rolling pigs in a blanket for every holiday meal of every suburban kid at every cookout every summer ever. At Christmas meet in Oli, home of the gourmet scrapple, there's a mounted deer head every few feet, antlers crowning the wood paneled room in the center, a few aisles of provisions, yellow mustard, white bread, blue boxes of mac and cheese. A freak October snowstorm was bearing down on the area, cutting my stay short and causing Christmas to buzz with snow, pre-snowpocalyptic urgency. Shoppers were filling up with smoked pork, bacon, and potato salad. Emergency supplies. The lady running the busy counter went to the back and got the owner. What do you want to know, he said. I've been told it's gourmet. His shoulders relaxed and he laughed, his blue eyes sparkling. Well, it's my great uncle. No, wait. My great, great uncle's recipe. Takes all day. You collect up your bones from butchering the, for the week. Put those in a pot, cover them with water, add your spices. Salt, pepper, coriander. Liver goes in. Some kidneys, some heart. Not too much. Just a couple of pounds for 300-pound batch of scrapple. Now here's the family recipe. Add cornmeal till it's yellow enough, buckwheat till it's dark enough, and flour till it's thick enough. I recognized the millionth retelling of a well-honed story and heard my father's cadence in his voice. Can I get some? Nope. Sold out. Storm's coming and it just got bought up. So what's in Scrapple? Not the pickled pig snouts from Dietrich's that now sit on my desk next to my keyboard reminding me of my boundaries and making my lip curl. Maybe liver, maybe not. Not fat and not any of that weird stuff. Just a bad reputation. Back home, I fry up a few slices of meat pudding, my souvenir, sensory memory warm and humming with friendly Pennsylvania Dutch butchers, and dust falling through sunlit childhood comfort breakfast. I pour on some maple syrup, and then some more, and check the internet to discover that, in fact, www.scrapple.com is not available. It's owned by someone in Brooklyn. Depending on that person, this may be Scrapple's first step into ironic rehabilitation, so long as some butcher groupie in a trucker hat doesn't ask, well, what's in it? Okay, you guys, that's my Scrapple story. 
<laughs> it feels so good to give it life, Jack. I've literally sat on that for two years waiting for someone else to like, it's one of the very few places in life where there are still honest to goodness gatekeepers. And I feel like I've just taken my power back. Yes. And room temperature pickled pig snout. Like I, uh, I, I felt it. I, I tasted it as you said it. <laughs> I still have it. it it's ancient. And it, now it's two years old and it just sits there. And oh, man. It's a little curio object. Wow. So, Jack, you we have to, we have to take a break. Let's take a really short break. Okay, really short break, and then cooking question. Yes, we'll be right back. Cider Week helps to bring profitability to local orchards while reviving heirloom apple varieties by cultivating awareness of craft cider. Cider Week connects cider makers from New York State and select pioneering guest cideries outside the state to buyers from top restaurants, bars, and retail shops across New York City. Those culinary tastemakers, in turn, help increase consumer awareness of cider's pleasures by hosting public events, tastings, dinners, classes, and pairings that build appreciation and demand for regional ciders. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot, everyone. I am Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza. Jack, engineer, producer, executive producer of Heritage Radio Network, you have a blanching question for me. I'm such an amateur. (laughs) So, um, I don't know. I'm just trying to cook more out of cookbooks lately. And um, even for something simple, like a side of kale, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. just like, okay, what does Mike Anthony say in his book? Um, Not that I haven't made kale before and sauteed it and done just fine. But in all these cookbooks, they're always calling for blanching, which for me in my tiny little kitchen becomes... a huge mess kind of mm-hmm. because you got the big pot you got to boil all the water and then you're dipping it in there and then i have another like my other only big pot really which isn't even that big filled with like all the ice that i had in my freezer and then i'm trying to like quickly dunk it in the ice and then i'm draining it and everything and it's just so much work and i'm just like do i really need to do that and and if so is there a better more efficient way to do it so the process of blanching is to partially to mostly cook a vegetable depending on depending on two things the vegetable and how long you leave it in the blanching water. Um it makes it bright green. So if we're talking about broccoli, string beans, peas, their natural green is beautiful, but if you blanch them it really brightens up and then shocking it in the ice bath stops the cooking immediately so if you were to just drain it and leave it in a colander the steam the ambient steam and the heat of the other vegetables around it in the colander would continue the cooking process so it's an important step if you want your you know if you're going to make broccoli salad you don't want your broccoli to be perfectly raw there are some alternatives the number one is a microwave Oh, you know, <laughs> we're in no microwave house. Uh, I'm not allowed to have a microwave. That's a whole. That's a whole other question because while I love my girlfriend very, very much, I, I really want somebody to scientifically set the record straight on why microwaves are not dangerous. Harold McGee has done extensive research and wrote about it for the New York Times. Microwaves are not dangerous. Jack's typing right now. <laughs> yeah, mean? send article. <laughs> Microwaves are not dangerous. They are, um, you know, I, I I know we're almost out of time and we have to wrap it up, but I had a conversation with my students this morning who were like, I don't get a flu shot. That's poison. I'm like, are, where did you get that information from? Because that is not true. And I feel like microwaves 
kind of suffer from the same bad reputation that they are emitting, you know, cancer causing waves that we can't see that everybody's, you know, chromosomes are falling apart as a result of microwaves. Not the case at all. Microwaves merely heat up the water that is inside of food. So if you're talking about peas, the water content will get warm and it will cook the vegetable from the inside. That's my back of the napkin explanation. Harold McGee on food and cooking, excellent food scientist. He has said microwaves are fine. Your other alternative is to lightly pickle whatever it is that you're going to make. So you could use vinegar, like um, apple cider vinegar, or just plain old white vinegar that I buy by the gallon and let whatever it is, like say you're going to use broccoli florets, just let those sit in like one part vinegar, one part water solution for a half an hour and then rinse it. You'll still have a little bit of the vinegar flavor, but you may be dressing a salad anyway. And so that will create some of the same effect. And if you're taught, you mentioned kale, I just rub kale with some salt until my fingers hurt. Like it should, it takes a little bit of work to massage it and then let it sit for about half an hour. It'll wilt down and then just rinse the salt off. And you've got basically cooked as I'm using air quotes, essentially cooked kale. Yeah. Got it. So you don't have to blanch the, and I will give you one final thing is if you're going to, you can set up a blanching station and blanch a whole bunch of stuff and then put it in a like one quart freezer bags and pop them in your freezer. So instead of blanching string beans for one night, blanch string beans, you know, seven have a whole session there. Yeah. Right, And then that way you just have to warm them up in the pan or whatever, you know, melt them in some cold water. Got it. I'm also really trying to get away from being so exact with these cookbooks. See, and I have to say the better I become at cooking and the more confident I become, the more I like using cookbooks because exactly like you said, like it makes you, it, you get to see through other people's eyes, right? How they cook. We tried to cook through the Momofuku cookbook. Oh my God. It, was, it took me like three months to get through the ramen recipe. And I was like, you know what? Oh, yeah. yeah. Everything I'm, I'm was reading like, the Ivan ramen book now, and I'm, I'm daring to maybe try one of them. We'll you see. should totally try it. Yeah. It was, worth, it was totally worth the experiment because I would not have developed as deep an appreciation as I now have for Mr. Chang. I mean, I have always respected David Chang, but this is like... This is some serious, not not made for home. And now it's like, no, I just have a really nice coffee table book. <laughs> and that's not fair. There are other recipes that come together very quickly in there. But yeah, no, the ramen took me like three months. But using cookbooks and, you know, vegetable cook cookbooks. My friend Sherry Castle has a great book called The Southern Vegetable Cookbook. That's excellent. And that's how you break out of your some of your ruts. Yeah, true. All right, everybody. So Cider Week was the sponsor. I am going to be at Spider Week. Spider. (laughs) Spider Week is next month. Spider Week. That's the, yeah. Now that was uh, last weekend. Uh, At Cider Week, they are having an Orchard Street Cider Festival, the Lower East Cider Festival on Sunday, November 8th from noon to 4 p.m. I am going to be running the Dip Your Own Caramel Apple Stations. I just got the box delivered from nuts.com with all my little toppings that you'll be able to dip your caramel apple in. Come by and say hi. Heritage Radio Network will be there recording some stories from you guys. I am always honored that you listen. Thank you to Heritage Radio Network. If you like what you have heard, become a member by going to our website, heritageradionetwork.org and clicking the donate button and going to iTunes and leaving a review for Sharp and Hot. I would be ever so thankful. Jack, thank you for engineering the show. And we're going to start collecting your Thanksgiving cooking questions And also, if you have stories about hating the holidays, I would love to hear them. I'm someone in uh, 
one foot in that boat. I used to be two feet in that boat, and I've been working really hard to get out of that boat. But I know that you're out there, and I know that this time of year is not awesome for everybody. So if you want to shoot me an email or read me a story into the voicemail, I would love, love, love to hear it. You can. You don't even have to leave your name. You can be completely anonymous. Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing a show on what happens when you don't look forward to it. So... On a happy note, thank you all so much for listening. I am honored that you're out there. And until next week, everybody, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.